There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome back, fight fans. This is your host, Alden Kodash, host of the Fight City Podcast. Excited to provide you guys with another episode, first featuring a recap of last night's Showtime doubleheader in Carson, California, followed by a discussion between myself and Michael Carver, the editor-in-chief of the Fight City Dot com. We're going to be talking then about uh, the big takeaways from last week's Canelo uh, B-Ball fight. I know it's a little bit belated. We have some content on the on the site uh, regarding the fight and how it played out and one of the big upsets of the year in boxing, a huge shock. Uh, but we'll go into depth on what it really means for boxing and, and Canelo and B-Ball's future going forward. But, uh, yeah, to get right back into uh, what just happened last night, we saw... A tremendous doubleheader, first featuring Jerron Boots Ennis. He knocked out Custio Clayton in the second round. Uh, tremendous right hand over the top. Puts Clayton out of there. And Clayton, 19-0, one draw. Very good fighter. A lot of people were, were kind of hoping optimistically he would be the guy to, to really test Ennis uh, wrong again. He was shown to be a mere mortal in the... Um, in the shadow of Jerron Boots Ennis from Philadelphia. Ennis, uh, just a tremendous, tremendous talent. Calls out Earl Spence after the fight, as he is, his IBF mandatory. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I think let's just wait until the smoke clears on Earl Spence and, and Ter- Terrence Crawford first. You know, I think we waited long enough. No need for anything to, uh, to, to get in the way of that. And uh, no doubt about it, I think Jerron Boots Ennis would be uh, an extremely, extremely tough fight for Earl Spence, maybe almost as tough as Terrence Crawford would be. Uh, but let's wait until that fight happens with Crawford and Spence, and then let's have uh, Ennis probably take over 147, because, you know, given Crawford and Spence and the stage in their career and their prospects at 154, uh, I, I think it's very likely that we see Jerome Boots Ennis take over the welterweight division in the next year or two. And in the interim, there's plenty of good fights for him, uh, while he waits, I mean, he's got Connor Bennett, he's got Virgil Ortiz, uh, I mean, both undefeated fighters that it's kind of hard to see their management placing them against a guy like Ennis, who's just kind of a boogeyman at this point. Uh, but he's got very good uh, options to pick from. David Abenetian is another one. Uh, yeah, all fights that I think he would win personally, uh, and, and fights that he, he might be facing down the road uh, to unify the championships once... Um, Hopefully, Spence and Crawford unify their championships and, and move on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, very, very bright future for Boots Ennis, who improves his record and uh, stakes the claim as the IBF welterweight champion of the world. Uh, in the main event, though, we had Jermel Charlo uh, knocking out Brian Castaño in the 10th round in their rematch of their July draw last year. Very close fight last year. Uh, one controversial card that kind of was the hair in the soup, put a lot of controversy on that one in Texas. But nonetheless, the first fight was very close. And in this fight, Jermel Charlo left zero questions on the table. He uh, he was winning the fight, and he closed the show on a great fighter like Brian Castaño, a guy who most people thought beat uh, Erez Bar in a brilliant draw. Uh, a lot of people thought beat Jermel Charlo. Um, probably more 
thought he won than, than lost or got a draw against Charlo last July. Charlo just just wrecks him, really. And, uh, you know, I had Charlo up 87-84 going into the last round. One judge had it 87-84, and the other two had it slightly wider than that. Uh, I thought it was a very close fight through the first six rounds, but what really impressed me with Jermel Charlo is, is his boxing ability from range. After round six, he just controlled the fight with the jab and lateral movement and uh, really set up the counter left hook in the 10th round that put Castaño down uh, for the first time in their two fights. And then he uh, hurt him again with the left hook and took him out with that left hook to the body, riveting shot, floored him twice in the round uh, en route to a technical knockout in the 10th. Uh, Jermel Charlo, with the win, becomes the first four-belt era undisputed 154-pound champion. And uh, he's got a couple options to pick from next, although I'm not sure if he wants to, uh, you know, really reign at 154 for a while or move up to 160, where his brother is, Jermel. Uh, options include mandatory challengers like uh, Tim Zhu on the WBO side and, and the towering Inferno, uh, Sebastian Fundora, I think, on the WBC side. Both... Uh, Sue and Fundora, especially after this performance, would be significant underdogs to win. Uh, personally, I think the Fundora fight is more interesting right now, although Sue's a very good fighter. Fundora, uh, with his you know six foot six, six foot seven stature and his reach, coming off the career-defining victory over Erickson Lubin that tenth round stoppage, I think it'd be a very exciting fight. But uh, Lubin's power was able to get Fundora in some trouble, and uh, Lubin's a good puncher, but. Jermel Charlo, you know, I've, I've long compared him to Julian Jackson in terms of that 154-pound knockout power. I stand by that. I know that's a very, very bold claim. Julian Jackson, one of the hardest pound-for-pound punchers of all time. Uh, Jermel Charlo, his power is just as scary, or almost just as scary. And to be honest, I think he has much better boxing skills than Julian Jackson, which I think is a less disputed point and something that he really put on display last night. Uh, against Brian Castaño in a tremendous, tremendous performance. Uh, but with that performance, uh, there's going to be a lot of questions of where he lands on the pound-for-pound pound list. I know some fighters, or excuse me, some, some analysts already have him on their pound-for-pound pound list. Uh, Canelo just lost last week, uh, so a little bit of a shake-up in the top 10 pound-for-pound. Pound. Uh, I, I, I would definitely put him in the top 10 pound-for-pound, pound, and I almost think he might be closing in on that, you know, close to the middle of the you know, top five, the, the lower portion of the top five list with a performance like that. I mean, just think of the guy's resume, you know. Uh, he has the one loss to Tony Harrison that he avenged by knockout in a brilliant performance. Uh, knocked out Erickson Lubin in the first round. Knocked out Jason Rosario. Uh, wins over Austin Trout. Um, obviously, this victory over Brian Castaño in a brilliant fight. Uh, you know, these are just great, great uh, notches on his belt. And now he is 154-pound uh, four-division, or excuse me, four-belt champion. You know, really a, a great fighter, and uh, I really hope him the best. If, if that includes uh, campaigning as the undisputed king at 154, or if he wants to move up to 160, where it's a relatively weak division right now, especially with a lot of 160-pounders like Golovkin and um, and uh, Jermall Charlo eyeing Canelo at 168. Uh, there might be a brand spanking opening at 160 to unify those belts. Uh, I can't really think of... Uh, better opposition at 160 right now besides obviously uh, Triple G. I'm not even throw Jamal Charlo in, in the mix there because I don't think two brothers will ever fight each other for good reason. But uh, Triple G would be a good fight, but he's looking at 168 pound against Canelo. Uh, I can't think of a lot of other great fights for Jamal Charlo that would trump the two fighters I named uh, at 154, Sebastian Fundora and Tim Zhu. 
uh, also guys like Israel Madrimov. You know, there's some good up-and-coming talent, undefeated talent at 154. And personally, I would like to see Jermel Charlo defend his four belts and uh, kind of become a dominant champion of the modern era at 154, which is a great division, really on fire right now. And they have a undisputed king and uh, by far, in my opinion, the best fighter in the division, Jermel Charlo. So congratulations to him. And uh, we will put you on a brief pause while we uh, transition over to our discussion with Michael Carver. Uh, and we will be discussing the big shakeup and the significance of Canelo Alvarez's stunning loss by unanimous decision to Dimitri Ebal. Welcome back, fight fans. This is your host, Alden Todas, for another episode of the Fight City Podcast. I'm being joined by Michael Carver, editor-in-chief of the Fight City how are you tonight, Michael? I'm doing well. Alden, very happy to be with you tonight. Yes, we uh, we have a lot to unpack from last night's stunning upset, in my view, of uh, Canelo Alvarez. He was defeated by unanimous decision over Dimitri Bivol, who uh, fought the fight of his life, virtuoso performance. Uh, some saw it coming. Some were stunned. I'm kind of uh, in the middle. Uh, but it's still a huge moment when a fighter who's been as dominant at the top of the sport as Canelo Alvarez, you know, by most lights, the pound-for-pound king, is beaten, especially in a manner this convincing. 115-113 uh, across the board on the cards. A lot of people thought it should have been a little bit wider. We'll get into that later. What was your impression of this moment in the sport? Well, I think there's a lot of things to take from, from this, outcome uh i think that that it brings everybody back down to earth doesn't it about you know the where canelo alvarez stands i mean i don't think um you could argue going into the fight that the number one pound for pound fighter in the sport at the moment was canelo alvarez he's been very active uh, unified uh, the titles at 168. He's he's been very hot, and um, you know a lot of very uh, elevated talk about his abilities and where he stands, and about the fact that he is the number one attraction in all of boxing. He's he's this star figure. Mm-hmm. So that makes the the outcome you know, the impact of, of last night's outcome, like, even greater. But I think, in a way, it's a positive thing because it, it, it forces everybody to, like, step back and, and be a little more realistic, I think, yeah. about the fact that, yes, Canelo Alvarez is a, is a tremendous fighter. He's a tremendous talent, but he's not the only one. Yeah. He's not the only one. And, and if he's going to test himself, and push himself and go up against the other elite fighters in the sport, there's no shame in losing to Dmitry Bivol. There's no shame in, in losing to Gennady Golovkin, uh, etc. I mean, we, I feel that many people have kind of gotten drawn into this idea that we need another figure like Floyd Mayweather in the sport of boxing to make boxing relevant. And I don't think that's true. And in fact, I think the opposite is true. I think it's better, it's healthier, if we have a sport which seems to reflect 
a more intense and higher level of competition at the elite level. And yeah. that, to me, is a positive takeaway from last night's result. I, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, you know, in some ways it was almost anticlimactic to watch the, the best fighter pound for pound for so many years off and on the top of the list, depending on when he was active, Floyd Mayweather, uh, in a position that, you know, he never was knocked off. He was never even you know, really close to being knocked off. Uh, I mean, there were some closer fights towards the end of his career, but he was just so dominant that, um, yeah, it didn't reflect as well uh, for the healthiness of the competition um, of the sport. And Mayweather, he took on very, very tough challenges. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, his, his, his talent was on another level compared to the rest of the sport. And the fact that Canelo has met his match at, at 175 uh, against a guy like Bivol and would presumably uh, be tested to similar heights against fighters like probably David Benavidez, uh, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, or especially a guy like Arthur Baturbia at 175, uh, makes it more interesting. Uh, Canelo is a very exciting fighter. Exactly. And, um, you know, he's, he's not invincible. So, um, you know, I remember going to see a lot of Floyd Mayweather fights where it was just kind of, you know, waiting for the inevitable to happen. I mean, I know a lot of fighters, or I, I know a lot of people in the media that ever since Mayweather uh, destroyed Diego Corrales in 2001, never picked against him again. And and despite his great level of opposition that he was going up against, I don't even blame them. His, his talent was just on that level. Uh, but, you know, Canelo uh, is a little more vulnerable. He's still great. Uh, he's still probably the best man at 168 and 160 uh, by a little bit. Um, but he was beaten at 175. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's really no shame in being beat by potentially the best man at 175. We'll get into that a little bit later about, you know, the 175-pound picture right now with the Turbiev going up against Smith next month, which is a tremendous fight, and uh, where the smoke will uh, uh, settle after the um, – they unify the division if they do, him and, and Bivol. I mean, we've been waiting for 175 to clear up for a very, very long time. Um, you know, this is kind of a, a catalyst in the right direction for that because now Bivol has uh, seriously established himself as a major player and, and even a major name. I mean, he's, he's the man that just beat the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world. Yeah, and isn't, isn't this in a way more fun? And more yeah. exciting, you know. I mean, isn't it? Isn't it kind? Of, yeah. I mean, it opens up new possibilities. It opens up. Uh, you know, we can speculate about all kinds of different matchups. Both at one sixty-eight for Canelo, if he decide. I mean, I understand he he wants to have the rematch. The you know he's going to exercise his rematch clause. But still, we could speculate about. Well, if that doesn't come together, what what might he do instead at one sixty-eight? And suddenly the matchups become, in a way, even more interesting now. And then we can also like speculate about what Bivol's going to do yeah. and, and what this win means for him going into, let's say he does take on the winner of Smith versus uh, Betabiev. You know, it's suddenly a new perspective, you know, coming off a win over Canelo, right? So, so – this, to me, is, is uh, to emphasize the point, I mean, this is a very healthy outcome for boxing, whereas I imagine there's some people out there thinking the opposite, that, the, that 
you know, we were trying to make Canelo into this great superstar, into this, this you know, bona fide, all-time great, you know, and, and, that, that, and that we needed that. We need that kind of figure to keep boxing relevant and healthy. I, I beg to differ. And and and, there's, and and really, you know, with the exception of Floyd Mayweather, all-time great fighters can lose. You know, of course. Greatest fighter of all time. You know, he lost to Jake LaMotta. He lost to Randy Turpin. He lost to Joey Maxson. Uh, when he moved up in weight, the heat um, in and of itself was an issue. But, you know, he found himself in some issues when he moved up in weight. Uh, you know, these... These aren't unprecedented occurrences for great fighters. And I think it might encourage our incidents like this to just help encourage fighters to take more risk and not be so obsessed of, of how Mayweather's career unfolded and uh, maybe try to push themselves um, you know, towards uh, riskier fights at an earlier stage. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a net positive for boxing. And, uh, yeah, it helps really uh, catalyze what's going on at 175 as well. I mean, we're so excited to hear that Pete Terbiev and, and Joe Smith, that's going to be a, just a brutal fight next month. I, I have no doubt that Viterbia is going to come out on top, and I really hope he does because, you know, Bivol's already dominated and shut out Joe Smith a few years back. Uh, and Viterbiev and Bivol's a tremendous fight. But, you know, lots of action there. And, um, yeah, the exception of the – yeah, that's got that's got fight of the year, you know, possibilities oh. around it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah and and uh, and uh, <laughs> might be a very bloody affair. Yeah, I, mean, I could I could go on forever about this fight, as well as most people. Yeah, and and there's no question that uh, better be ever, better be ever, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, he he has to be seen as the favorite. Um, and so, and so now we can really get excited, potentially, about a showdown between him and Bivol. I mean, that that will be, you know, it won't be uh, as big a big money. It won't be as lucrative as say a fight involving Canelo, but coming from the perspective of just you know pure fight fans, uh, you know, it'll be it'll be just as big as as any other matchup in the sport. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the light heavyweight division has been very exciting for a number of years, but now it's really, you know, catching fire. And Canelo has helped to make that happen. So yeah. thank you, Canelo, for stepping up and, and making it clear to everybody how good a fighter uh, uh, Bivol is. Yeah. Yeah, and this wasn't a... You know, a little splurge at 175, uh, like he like he made when he fought uh, Sergey Kovalev, just to on paper become a four division world champion. This isn't a splurge at at a cruiserweight or the 190 pound variant of cruiserweight like he was planning to do earlier this year against an unknown titleist, uh, Makabu, I think his name was. Um, you know, this was a legitimate, one of the best, if not the best, light heavyweight in the world, Dmitry Bivol, and I, you know, give him all the credit in the world for taking this fight. I think they knew what they were getting themselves into. Um, and in some way, for fans of the Canelo-Triple G rivalry, I think this what happened last night is the best thing that could have happened because, um, you know, it does bring Canelo a little bit uh, more down to earth. And if he watches the, the film of the fight, 
and comes to the correct realization that no, he didn't win the fight, despite what he said after, you know, I, I think he might, uh, if he's open and puts his pride aside, he might not activate the rematch clause and, and go after the Triple G trilogy fight anyways, which uh, would have been contractually made official if Canelo would have won last night. I mean, they, they, they signed to fight each other in mid-September um, had Canelo won. I mean, Triple G carried out his end of the bargain by beating Rio de Murata, and, uh, you know, that there was nothing in the way of that fight if Canelo would have won. I think um, I'd much rather see this fight now, now that uh, Canelo has a chip on his shoulder. You know, he's coming off a loss, a decisive loss, uh, and against a fighter that I really think carried out Triple G's blueprint to how to beat Canelo uh, to a T. Um, Bivol was pretty much everything that uh, Canelo, or excuse me, Triple G was in their first fight against Canelo and in parts of the second fight. Uh, just a more youthful and more uh, you know energetic version than uh, a slightly aging version of Triple G in 2017. I, I agree with everything you've just said, Alden. I think the I hope that Canelo comes to his senses and and realizes that uh, 168 is where he belongs. Yeah. And um, and there's a lot of great matchups. There's a lot of opportunities for him there. And no one is going to hold it against them. No one's going to, especially since, you know, it looks at this point like Bivol uh, could go on to establish himself as a, as a you know, uh, for a long time to come, uh, yeah. a great champion. I mean, yeah, I, I, I hope that he rethinks what he's doing. Um, very hard to read this because it must be devastating. It must be very difficult for him to, to, to face up to what has happened because everything with Canelo's career, especially the last few years, it's very carefully planned out. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in the driver's seat, you know, uh, to his credit for his career. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a very serious setback to his plan. Yeah, it is. Um, definitely is. Uh, Canelo and Triple G. Oh, I'll, I'll edit this out. I had a, I had a thought, but I, <laughs> uh, I lost my train of thought. Um, what was I going to say? Canelo and Triple G. Uh, oh, I, I know what I was going to say. Okay. Um, second, um, brief pause. Yeah, I think if, if Canelo is looking at this fight objectively. Uh, and he kind of looks back in history. I'm, I'm going to steal some of the thunder from uh, what uh, Dan Raphael was, was saying in interview after the fight. But taking an immediate rematch uh, has historically, in stylistic nightmares, like I think Canelo's up against, like Bivol, is, uh, is, is a really bad idea. And I'm thinking of fights like uh, Shane Mosley against Winky Wright. You know, stylistic yeah. nightmares. Mosley's naturally smaller fighter gets beat right around the same margin in my view, nine rounds to three, eight rounds to four, uh, goes, fights an immediate rematch, does a few things differently, but the net result is the same, almost the same margins in the second fight. And you think of Mosley and Vernon Forrest, very similar situation. Um, you know, two fights where just not good stylistically, it's not going to detract from the legacy of Shane Mosley if he veers away from those fights and, uh, you know, fight fighters that are 
you know, more his size, Oscar De La Hoya, his, his legacy was enhanced by that victory. Uh, fighters like uh, Antonio Margarito, that was a huge legacy-enhancing victory. Some guys just have your number. And um, great fighters can lose to fighters that have their number. Eder Joffrey is one example. He lost to fighting Harada on two different occasions. Guy just had his number. Are we really going to, you know, just only think of Eder Joffrey in the context of fighting Harada, a fellow great fighter who beat him twice? Not really. I mean, Bernard Hopkins lost twice to Jermaine Taylor. I, I don't really think Hopkins' legacy is, is muddled with a fighter like Jermaine Taylor who didn't accomplish a fraction of what Hopkins did uh, throughout his reign at middleweight and light heavyweight. So, you know, I think um, Canelo should get real. I think someone needs to bring him down to earth and say, hey, maybe the rematch isn't the best uh, fight for you. I think, you know, you should go forward with the Golovkin fight and then just defend your titles at 168, which, like you said, I really think is his best weight division. Uh, he, you know, swept through the division, beat some very good fighters to unify, but there's more fights ahead of him at 168, most notably David Benavidez. Um and possibly Jamal Charlo if, if Charlo moved up from 160. And, you know, we know Demetrius Andrade moved up to 168. Uh, he's looking for a piece of Canelo. So, you know, there's more to accomplish at 168 despite having all the belts. Absolutely. And more to accomplish at 168. And if he were to uh, move forward that way and take on all the deserving opposition that's available to him there, he he can still, despite uh, this defeat, he can still, uh, you know, everybody was. What was the what was the, you know, the the tagline for this fight? It was all about legacy. Yeah. You know, losing to Bivol does not destroy his legacy. That legacy is still there. He can still move forward, and and establish uh, the legacy as one of the greatest Mexican fighters of all time. Yeah. That's still available to him, and, it, and it doesn't matter. You know, I'm I'm in agreement with you all. Yeah, he's only 31 years old. He's got a long career ahead of him if he wants to. I know there was some talk of uh, him kind of winding things down if he were to win this fight and were to win the Triple G third fight. Um, but you know, there's there's plenty of really good fights for him to take, and and maybe. You know, this is the start of a new chapter in, in Canelo Alvarez. I mean, he became a better fighter after Floyd Mayweather uh, beat him convincingly in 2013. You know, maybe, you know, there's, there's not that much more to his career, I would think, uh, after this fight. I mean, he was much younger when he lost to Mayweather, but, you know, there's essentially still an upside. And we've dimensioned to Canelo that maybe uh, he will uh, he, he will develop after this loss. Um, but, yeah, so... Let's talk about the judges' scorecards because there's been a lot of attention on the fact that all four judges had all four, or excuse me, all three judges had all four in the first four rounds scored for Canelo Alvarez. Uh, a lot of people have called this egregious, called this as uh, a, a a cry for investigation. Uh, in my view, I think they are blowing this one out of proportion. I think people should take a step back and look at the fact that the first four rounds, while I did score two of them for B-Ball, were all swing rounds. Now, each judge is not going into the fight uh, pre-filling out their scorecards. They're scoring one round at a time. Uh, the notion that Canelo would have held on to a draw had uh, 
Bivol won the uh, had Bivol not have won uh, the last uh, last round, you know that's that's ahead of when the judges were in real time sc- scoring the first four rounds. They weren't handicapping Bivol intentionally. They had, they didn't know how the fight was going to play out. Um, they were seeing very close rounds unfold, not much to pick from between either man. And uh, they happened to go all four rounds for Canelo. I, I'm surprised they did, but I don't think it's egregious that they did, considering that they were swing rounds. Now, I think what really solidifies the fact that it wasn't favoritism is the fact that the rounds that weren't swing, which is rounds 5 through 12, they scored seven out of eight of those rounds all for Bivol, and they scored identically. Uh, so they were watching the same fight as everyone else. Uh, most spectators had the fight around like I did nine to three, one seventeen, one eleven, which means most spectators agreed with ten out of the twelve rounds the judges scored. Um, there's going to be disagreements in swing rounds. Um, I do not think uh, it is caused to to bring so much negative attention to the sport and character assassinate these these decorated officials who are three of the best judges in the world, Tim Cheetah, Dave Moretti. Uh, especially Steve Weisfeld. Dave Moretti, for example, is uh, the last fighter to have Canelo losing a scorecard when he fought Triple G in the first fight. He was the only judge that was kind of in line with the majority of press row in 115-113 for Triple G. So, I, you know, I don't think that you know these judges were looking one way. I, 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 it's hard for me to uh, buy into that, um, especially without sitting down next to these judges and watching the fight round by round with them and uh, hearing their explanation for uh, their scorecards in the first four rounds. Um, I, 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 think, I think as a fan, I, I think, and, and a member of the media, I think we have to be responsible in when we decide to, to uh, pull the trigger on such, uh, on such allegations. Um, I, I think um, being irresponsible and flipping with them just brings a lot of negative attention to the sport, and people become way too reactive. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of also speaking from my experience in the aftermath of Josh Taylor versus uh, his last opponent, uh, Jack Catterall. Um, you know, if, if we don't want boxing to be looked at as a corrupt sport, we need to be selective and objective. And when we uh, question its, um, its uh, objectivity, that's just my opinion. Now, that's a lot speaking from someone who's uh, spent a uh, big portion of uh, my life in the last five years judging amateur fights, nearly 800 amateur fights judged at this point. Um, but, um, yeah, it definitely pains me to uh, see uh, this kind of anti-officiating sentiment uh, in the wake of, for the most part, I think a pretty good job scoring last night's fight. Well, I can't argue with uh, any of that, Alden, and, and I am very happy to take the opportunity to point out to everyone how you are an active referee and judge of amateur boxing. And, um, you know, so you know what you're talking about. And I think, I think the only thing to be, to be, to add to that is that it's symptomatic, isn't it? I mean, of, of what has gone before, right? So if the judges' cards are not as bad as many are making them out to be, 
the reaction to them is not so much the reaction to those cards, right? It's it's more a reaction to other fights yep. in years past and other outcomes, other decisions, other scorecards. Most notably, of course, the decisions in the two fights with Kennedy Golovkin. Especially, well, um, I think one egregious one was obviously nobody can argue that the Adelaide Bird 118-110 card is way out of whack. Uh, people don't remark on the fact that Adelaide Bird was sat down by the Nevada State Athletic Commission after that for uh, an amount of time I'm, I'm not aware of, but I know that she was. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand the sentiment that, you know, we should have the best officials in the world uh, doing fights and there needs to be consequences, but, you know, are, do we do we really live in a society that, that has zero margin for error? Especially in a in a score in a in a in a sport that's as subjective to 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 uh, to score as boxing is. I mean, two rounds Bobby. off cause for uh, speculation into someone's character. I, I just um, arguably off. I mean, as I said, they were all swing rounds, and each round is scored round by round. Um, you know, independently. I mean, judges are trained to score rounds independent of one another. Uh, so you know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree with you, Alden. But at the same time, when all the swing rounds yep. are going one way, you know, yeah. <laughs> it fits a pattern. It fits a pattern that that people have pointed out. You know, I mean, this goes back to the Danny Jacobs fight. It's not just the Golovkin fights. I mean, I mean, there has been a pattern, and it kind of fits. A overall uh, push, for lack of a better term, to to make things um, to, well. Ra- Rafa Garcia wrote an excellent essay on on Canelo a few years back called "The Rainmaker," mm-hmm. and the term ra- "rainmaker," of course, refers to the you know if you're a rainmaker, it means you make the money flow. And the, and the basic premise of the article was that, you know, things are going to go Canelo's way, and people are going to try and make things go Canelo's way because he's the rainmaker. People buy tickets to see him, and and he's the cash cow. And so, I'm not. I don't disagree with you at all, Alden. I think your your basic point is sound, but at the same time. You know, it's not outrageous for people to see a kind of trend that's developed over a number of years, and it seems like Canelo is almost untouchable. And everyone seems to agree that last night's fight, it was not close. No. I mean, that's the general consensus. It was not a close fight. So, you know... I thought it was a clear one fifteen, one thirteen. Yeah, I think I think the seven yeah. rounds that Bivol won were clear rounds that he won. And when you win seven rounds of the twelve without knockdowns, that means you win the fight. Um, you know, each round each each round each each fight is scored round by round. Uh and you know, judges are discouraged from conflating the story of the fight, the narrative of the general fight, with what's happening in each individual round. Uh but yeah, the fact that all 
three judges had the first four rounds is, you know, I, I can understand the suspicion that arises from that. At the same time, you know, I've seen bigger outcries over scorecards that vary so much from one another uh, where, mm-hmm. where they're so inconsistent that you wonder how judges were watching the same fight. You know, you think about Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard, and you got one judge scoring 115-113 for Hagler, and he's sitting uh, a few feet away from a judge that has it 118-110 for Leonard. And you wonder how mm-hmm. you know, they're all considered the best officials in the world, and, you know, are they, are, are they trained differently? Are they not interpreting the scoring criteria the same way, which has a degree of subjectivity embedded in it? Um, in this case, it was the opposite. <laughs> you know, these judges, from, from a supervisor standpoint, uh, did a really good job out of consistency. You know, if, if, if this was in the amateurs and, uh, you know, you go off of how judges are rated, all judges would have gotten the highest marks because they were all consistent. Uh, with one another, and consistency is what uh, increases your your um, your rating as an amateur judge. Uh, mm-hmm. It's um yeah, it's not easy. There's many reasons why um, things can be skewed. Uh, at least to which is the fact that the scoring criteria is somewhat subjective, and the other is the fixed vantage point they have around the ring. We have multiple camera angles. They have uh, you know one uh, position that they're viewing the fight from the whole fight. Um, Yeah, I I don't think there was any funny business in there. I I think what it comes down to is four swing rounds, and that's quite a bit of swing rounds. And um, I disagreed with them on two of the four swing rounds. Uh, Even had they disagreed, uh, even had they give one of those four rounds to to Bivol, they would not be anywhere near the outcry. Just think of that. You know, one six, yeah. one twelve, one round different. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. This the, the tenor of uh, the reaction would be completely different. Um, the thought that well, baseball needed to win the last round to avoid a draw. Um, you know, judges can't predict the future while they're giving the first four rounds uh, to the fighter that they thought edged them. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I. Yeah, I, I mean, if they were looking to rob Canelo, they would have done it. That's just where I land on the issue. You mean Beevil? You mean Beevil? Excuse me, you're right. If they were looking to rob yeah. Beevil, they would have found another round to give to Canelo uh, besides the first four. And they, they would have had right. it for They would have had it for Canelo. Uh, they didn't do that. There's no change in the result. Um, they got the non-swing rounds right in its entirety, 100%. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, I, I understand the suspicion. The uh, the character assassination, I think, is extreme and over the top. Uh, and I think it reflects a lot of, of uh, negative attention, or it provides a lot of negative attention to the sport that uh, you know, I think judging has improved as a result of some of the egregious uh, scorecards that we've seen over the last several years. Uh, but of course, it's commission by commission because we don't have a, you know, federal oversight uh, like some other sports do. And um, yeah, different commissions are going to take different actions. So yeah, <laughs> a lot to unpack. Uh, you know, I think the judges got the right outcome, 
And I'm um, glad they did because the 115-113 did get me very nervous because Bevel worked so hard to get the victory last night. So now that Canelo has suffered his first loss in uh, nearly 10 years, a uh, decisive loss to Dimitri Bivol, the inevitable question, given how much stake boxing fans uh, had in his pound-for-pound pound number one status, is where does he go from here on the pound-for-pound pound list? I mean, he's amongst very, very good company near the top with Usyk, Spence, uh, in a way, obviously Terrence Crawford. Uh, Canelo was number one on most lists. Uh, it's kind of hard to maintain that coming off a loss this decisive. Uh, so wh- where do you think he stands now? Yeah, that, that, it's it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, roughly 24, 36 hours ago, everybody, I mean, with very few exceptions, yeah. had Canelo Alvarez at the very top, number one pound for pound. He, he earned it. He's been very active. Uh, unified the the different uh, title belts at 168, and and you know in addition to that he's he's arguably the number one star in the sport. So it, it's really interesting to, to 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 even even if you don't believe or hold, put much stock in pound for pound lists, mm-hmm. it's still interesting to contemplate this question because. The real question is, did we overrate him? You know, have we have we put Canelo on a pedestal because we felt it was necessary to do so, and and overestimate his achievements? And you know, that, it's a, it's an intriguing question. I, I tend to think that that uh, it's 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 a bit of both. I mean. I, I think that he deserved a lot of the accolades that came his way, although I would argue that Alexander Usyk is actually the fighter of the year for 2021, not Canelo. Mm. Um, you know, but uh, but there's no arguing with the fact that in so many ways Canelo is number one. Did we over did we overrate him? I think I think it's more the fault lies in the expectations that. Whoever is the mythical number one pound-for-pound fighter should be in some ways kind of untouchable, invincible. Yeah. You know, yeah. and... and it comes back go to... Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, that goes back to the, the legacy Mayweather days where the number one pound-for-pound was kind of etched in stone, kind of unbeatable, like Mayweather was uh, for, for his, his reign at the top of the list. Um, but in this case, we have a much more exciting generation that we discussed earlier that uh, we have five fighters that um, some of them can fight each other, like Bud Crawford and Earl Spence, uh, that can easily play musical chairs with a number one pound-for-pound spot. You know, I'd much rather be a part of that sport than, than the top-heavy nature of the pound-for-pound list in around 10, 2010 to 2015 where Mayweather you know, kind of ruled on the very top uh, with, with some opposition from Pacquiao, who he uh, beat pretty convincingly in 2015. I kind of like where we stand now. I'm with you. Yeah. And meanwhile, I mean, if if last night's fight means that we put a little more focus and a little more emphasis on guys like Terrence Crawford, mm. I mean, that's all for the good too, isn't it? What about I mean, if, if it makes the Crawford versus Spence fight for the vacant number one pound for pound 
you know, any any narrative that gets those two fighters in the ring works for me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it kind of opens up some space, doesn't it? And it and it opens up some attention uh, to looking at those other fighters, and 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 that's a that's a healthy thing. That's a positive thing. Um, and and it so it's less about you know everybody being disappointed uh, with Canelo and more about hey we've got a lot of good elite level fighters in the sport. I mean and and a number of them. I think are are underrated. You know, I mean, you look at the pound for pound list, and you know, where's Lomachenko? He's way down. You know, I, I think you know the loss to Teofimo Lopez has, has caused us to his stock just plummeted. I mean, is that really deserved? I mean, I just use that as an example of how like one defeat should not totally undermine. Our perspective and our and our and our judgment of a fighter, and, and the same should apply here with Canelo. I mean, there's no shame in losing to Dmitry Bivol, and uh, and losses, as you noted earlier, all-time great fighters lose fights to other excellent fighters, and that's part of what makes boxing so exciting and so interesting. Why would we want to have it any other way? I'm with you 100%. I think uh, the loss that Canelo faced last night, he you know, he, he lost uh, a fight that um, that he didn't look bad in. He just lost to the better fighter that night, kind of butted the star of uh, Dimitri Bivol um, into bigger and better things at 158 pounds. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited for the future. Uh,